And so now I would like to invite Van Cochran up to give the message. Thanks, Amanda. <clears throat> You're a quiet group this morning. I mean, not during that first worship song, but uh, ever since. So, hey, great to see everybody here. Um, my name is Van. I'm, I'm the senior pastor here, and I get to give the message today. But, uh, boy, we've had some great messages in recent weeks. And uh, it, although Lori and I have been gone, we pick up on them when we come back. And uh, I, I'm just really thankful for the, all the gifted people God's put here, aren't you? It, it's, really, it's really a cool thing, yeah. Hey, today I want to talk to you in, in continuation of the series, Life in the Wild, um, how to think like heaven. How to think like heaven. We have to learn how to think like heaven in order to walk in the wild. And uh, well, let me ask this. How many of you, how many parents do we have here of small children? Have you ever asked your child or, or adult children? This applies all the way up to, say, 22. Here, here are a few words that you know. Or maybe you've been asked this yourself. It's just real simple words. What were you thinking did you ever hear that? Like as, as something has gone wrong and you're, you're being corrected for it or you're trying to explain it and what were you thinking? I remember one time the question was asked of me, what were you thinking when you threw a stone at your cousin's head? And I had an answer. I was thinking that just like the guys on TV that throw knives and stick around people, I thought I was just going to miss his head. I thought you know, it was fun, but... Uh, that was before I learned that flat stones curve when you throw them. Now, when, when, we, when, we, when we engage with life, we engage with life from a mental perspective. Uh, so, some basic assumptions about life and the ways that we view life. And the message today that I want to bring has to do with learning to think not the way I was brought up to think, not the way everyone at work thinks, not the way the newspapers think or the, all the websites that I go to think, but I want to learn to think the way heaven thinks. I want to be able to see life through God's eyes. And when we say, and when Jesus said that we were to pray, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven... What he meant was, I mean, it really starts personally for me learning to think like heaven. How can I be part of expressing heaven's will on earth if I don't think like heaven? How, how can I experience the goodness and the blessing of heaven if I don't begin to think like heaven thinks? And so uh, the question, how do we do that? How, how do we begin to think like heaven? Uh, we're going to try to answer that somewhat today. Now, I'm reading a book by a guy named Bob Hazlitt. Anybody here hear of Bob Hazlitt? Okay, great guy, man. If you want to listen to some powerful messages, you can probably find him on YouTube. Um, but he wrote this book, Think Like Heaven, and I'm just reading through it right now. But very interesting to me, he started off with an illustration uh, from his days in high school football. And the illustration was interesting because it was so parallel to my own experience and to some things that, that, I, that I had encountered that uh, I, I'm not going to copy his story. I'm going to tell you my story, okay? So if you read this book and you see his football illustration, 
And you think, oh, Van gave a football illustration. Did he steal that from Bob? No, I'm not. This is my own story, okay? So um, where I grew up, there were not very many sports to participate in. It was a small town, small school. Uh, once you got into high school, you were beyond little league age. The only things left to choose from were football and basketball, uh, marching band, and maybe a, maybe a couple of other academic clubs. But sports-wise, it all boiled down to football and basketball. And of those two, I loved football and always loved football. I think even if there had been a dozen sports options, I would have loved football. And so I played on football teams from the time I was in fourth or fifth grade all the way on up through high school. And my senior year, in the first game of the season, I did okay. I caught a couple passes, and one of them I caught was a touchdown pass. And so that was really cool. I was going into the second game feeling pretty confident because, you know, I'd done fairly well. We weren't a passing team. Most of the time we ran the ball, so catching two passes was, uh, was, was a big deal. And um, that week... During physics class, our physics teacher was actually one of the assistant coaches on the team. And it was, it was his first year at the school. Um, he wasn't a young guy. He was a middle-aged guy, big guy, really looked like a football player. I mean, our, the consensus of opinion among the players was he knew more about football than the head coach and any of the other coaches that we had. And so we all really held this guy in high regard. And during physics class... Uh, he got sidetracked. You know how teachers will go, will move off topic. And he started talking about our football team and the game we had coming up that next weekend. And he said, I scouted the team that we're playing. He said, I was there. I watched them play. And then he turned to me. And out of the whole class of probably 25 students, maybe eight of them were on the football team. He said, I, look, I watched the guy that you're going to play across from, and he is an animal. <laughs> he said, this guy is really tough. And then he said, I don't know if you can handle him or not. Now, have any of you ever had a coach, like a fo- football coach particularly maybe, or an athletic coach? Have any, any of you ever had a coach that was demented? Yeah, I think that in his demented way, he thought he was encouraging me. Um, I, you know, I think he thought he was encouraging me. But to me, I mean, we didn't have any relationship. He, this is his first year here. I only knew him for a month. There was no follow-up talk afterwards like, hey, here's what you need to do, you know, to, to get the best of this guy or anything like that. So it was just, it was, it was just, it was just out there. This guy's an animal. He's going to eat you alive. That's what I heard. And that's what I went away thinking. Now, first, I want to ask, are there any coaches in here? Okay, will you admit it? Okay, God bless you. We love you. We value coaches. They are not demented. I made that up. Okay, I just want you to know that. That was just, I just made that up. But I went into that game uh, really with a lack of confidence. And I, I took what he said and I kind of embraced it. And it wasn't until somewhere, I don't know, in the second quarter, maybe the third quarter, that there was a play where I had to crack down. I was an end, so I, sometimes I played right on the line. Sometimes I split out as a wide receiver. But on this play, I had to crack down and block this defensive tackle that he had told me was this animal. And somehow I got the guy just right and knocked him down. 
And I remember in that instant, as the play's moving and as I'm moving and everything's moving, the thought just flashed through my mind, I'm as good as him. You know, I, I can beat him, in fact. But up until that moment, I had believed this other thing, that I couldn't beat him. Now, um, in that game, I caught another pass, a touchdown pass in the end zone that... Uh, I never saw the picture, but a good friend of mine said it was a really good catch. Let me say that. And there's no bragging in that because I was a mediocre athlete. I, had a couple, I did a couple good things. But it was a really good catch. And one of the neighboring towns actually put a picture of it in their newspaper. And so I came out of that game feeling really confident going into the next game. And the one thing I was confident of was that I could catch the football. And I, I wasn't so confident in the blocking arena, but I could catch the football. So Saturday morning... Uh, before this second game, we're having breakfast at my home, and in the midst of the conversation, my dad said to me, well, Van, what are you going to do when you drop one of those touchdown passes? Now, man, up to that moment, I'd never thought about dropping one. I just thought, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to catch any ball that's thrown to me. And I think my dad's intent was and, but he didn't get to complete this thought somehow in the midst of the conversation. Or maybe he did complete it, and all I remember was that first part. But um, uh, I think he intended to say, if you miss it, you get back up and you go catch the next one. Something like that. That's where he was headed with that. He was a, he was a great athlete himself. But um, I just took it as, oh, I might miss one. That day, during the game... Um, my route was down the middle seam, and I, I beat the guy that was defending me by a couple steps. And they threw the ball, and the goal line's right here, and the ball was right. Actually, the ball was right here, and my hands were right here. And it just went off the tips of my fingers. All I had to do was reach six inches further, and I would have had it maybe less than that. And so did, you know, did my acceptance of that question impact whether or not I cut that ball. You know, I, I, who knows? I know I still remember the statement, and I know that, uh, I, I know I still remember accepting that, and then actually dropping a touchdown pass that day, that game. Now, it's not as bad as it seems, because the next play, the quarterback said, look, you beat him so bad that play, let's run the same play, see if you can beat him again, and you'll catch it this time. And so the second time, if you know football, the guy played back further, so I couldn't get past him. And uh, it was play into the end zone, so I didn't have space to run, just run past him. So he backed up, and so I just turned around right at the goal line, and the ball was right there, and I caught it, and the guy hit me in the back. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was over the goal line, you know, breaking the plane, and knocked me back into the field like a yard or two. And so they didn't give me the touchdown. They spotted the ball where I, where I hit the ground, which was wrong, by the way. And, and that should have been a touchdown. But none of that. My main point is, I, you know, I don't regret anything about, about football or about playing it. It was fun. I loved it. I uh, wish I'd been able to play it longer than I did. But, um, you know, those games and everything, I don't have any regrets about that, even the ball tipping off my fingers. You know, what I do look back on, and, uh, and regret might be too strong of a word, but what I observe, what, what I look at is that I allowed statements from other people to define me. I internalized what they said. I took what they said, and I thought, oh, you are the coach. If you think that I can't beat this guy, then I'm in deep trouble. I can't do it. 
And hearing my father's words, what, what about when you miss one of those? You know, I, I'd never even thought of that before. Wow, maybe I will miss one. I, I kind of like, I allowed those things to define me. And one of the things that messes our lives up is when we allow other people or situations or experiences we've had to define us. Even when we allow our own thinking that is wrong thinking to define us. It might, it might proceed out of some logical, logical process. When I allow that to define me, and let's say I've done bad on three or four tests in a row, and I conclude I am a loser. That's a wrong definition of who I am, in spite of my experience. And when someone else looks, looks at you and says, when are you ever going to grow up? And you're here you are 24 years old already. Or someone looks at you and says, why do you walk that way? Did you know you walk funny? And you never knew you walked funny. And maybe you do walk funny. But when you embrace that as your identity, oh, I'm the person who walks funny and everybody that sees me walk knows that I walk funny. And probably half of them are snickering because I walk so funny. When we embrace those and allow them to define us, we're walking into a self-designed defeat. What we need to do is to learn to allow heaven to define us. And then allow heaven to define the way not only that I'm going to look at myself, but how I'm going to look at the world and look at others. And so... We need, as, as we press more and more into what it means to honor Jesus, to live for Jesus, we need to learn how to think like heaven. And that's what I want to talk to you today about. Now, six weeks ago, or six or seven, five or six or seven weeks ago, Wilson gave a message on our identity in Christ. And he said that when you become a Christian, you are no longer a sinner. You should not call yourself a sinner. You know the New Testament never calls a believer, a Christian, a sinner. Because to say you are a sinner is defining your nature. That's defining who you are. That doesn't mean we don't sin. We do sin. But sinning doesn't make me a sinner by nature. Once I become a Christian, I have a new nature. I have a new identity. And the Bible calls us righteous. And the term that's most often used of believers is the word saint. Now, how many of you come from a Catholic background? Okay, if not, then we're all familiar with this, I believe, or, or many of us are. A saint in the Catholic Church is someone who has risen to a very lofty status as far as faith is concerned. They have done something really powerful in uh, the Christian realm, there have been miracles, etc., and they're declared a saint, which is like a super Christian. But in the New Testament, the word saint is used to describe all Christians, because what it means is a holy one. It means someone who has been set apart for God. It means someone who has been made righteous by Jesus Christ and his work in their life. Now, when we say that we have a new identity, when we say that we are changed, that we have a, a new nature. We mean something more than simply 
Um, what happens when a person experiences identity theft? You know, someone else out there might be able to somehow get your social security account number, your birth date, your name, and set up a false identity and, and then, you know, take advantage. Um, we mean more than that. Uh, but I think probably what a lot of us think is when we hear new identity, um, think like this. Have you ever seen one of those movies where someone's in trouble and they've got to get out of the country or they've got to get out of town and someone else says, well, Vito, down, he has this little shop down there. He's really not a tailor. If you give him $5,000, he'll give you a new passport, a new driver's license, a new birth certificate. He will give you a new identity. Now, in that case, you get a new name and some new designations, but you're still the same old rotten person you've always been. You're doing it because you're a rotten, you're still a thief, you're still a, a criminal. And when we think of new identity in Jesus, it goes well beyond simply God writing down in a book in heaven, Van is now forgiven for all of his sins, and I am looking at him as if he were a new creation. And so that's written down in heaven. Now it is written down in heaven, but it's more than that. It's not just there like it's a new name. I'm still the same rotten sinner I've always been. You know, like the phrase, you know, I'm just a sinner trying to get to heaven or whatever. But when Jesus gives us a new nature, a new identity, what that means is that what's written down in heaven actually comes into us. And actually, I keep my old name. I've always been named Van. Social security number's the same one I got at birth. Birth date's the same, etc. But what's changed is not the outside. It's the inside that changes. We get, we get new nature, no longer prone to sin. Now I am righteous. I am prone now to want to obey God and serve God. Now, I still do sin. But the reason I sin is because of misunderstanding. When I don't understand the truth and I get locked up in looking for peace and happiness and joy in the wrong places and I don't really realize that I have everything I need through Christ, that I have peace and life and joy and power through Jesus, when I don't realize that and rest on that, then I start thinking different funny thoughts that sidetrack me and, and I end up sinning. But what we need to do is to really come to grips with this concept that we are new. And two weeks ago, Luke uh, gave a great message. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to go back. Get both of these, Wilson and Luke. But um, one, of, one of Luke's uh, key statements in the message was, and I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but it is, it's not who you are that determines your behavior. And I'm going to say the course of your life. It's not who you are that determines the direction and course of your life. It's who you think you are. It's who you think you are. So you could be a son or a daughter of the living God. But if you think that, well, at the core, I'm just a rotten sinner, then you're going to, you're going to live that out. You're going to live this life of complete frustration because on the one hand, you have the desires of a son of God or a daughter of God. But on the other hand, in your mind, you believe you're still a rotten sinner. And so you're just going to you're going to lean into that kind of like the criminals in the and to maybe, uh, you know, I'm going into a lot of criminal uh, illustrations here. But uh, 
Have you ever seen one of those movies where um, the guy tries, or the girl tries to reform themselves, and they're trying to break from their criminal past, and they do pretty well for a while, and then they hit some hard times, and they need money, or they're in a tight spot, and they break the law, and someone confronts them, and they say, well, I'm a thief. That's what I am. Have you ever seen one of those? Okay, so I'm a thief. That's what I am. That's all I can do. Well, if that's what we believe, I'm a sinner, then that's what I'm going to act out. And so what we need to do is to begin to apply the truth of God to our lives and to our minds in a way that enables us to have the actual worldview of life, the view of life from heaven, to see from heaven. That's what Jesus meant when he said um, that we were to pray, our Father, uh, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so how do we do that? Well, Dave last week gave a message where he talked about the fact that it is a battle and that uh, it's, it's a struggle, and, and it is because everything around us battles against this, and uh, so many things from our past battle against it. But um, we can win the battle, and we're going to look at some passages today that show us how to win this battle, and I'm particularly going to talk to you about why we make declarations why we state things and how important it is that we state things out aloud publicly. Um, sometimes I get confused, and I can't remember if I've used an illustration yet or not. Now, did I talk to you about the, the man in a church 25 years ago yet that uh, was caught in adultery? Okay, good, thank you. You can edit that part of the message out there. I'll pause right now and start. I'm joking about that. Um, so 25 years ago, I'm in a church pastoring this church, and a couple comes to see me, and uh, the man has just confessed to his wife that he had been involved in an adulterous relationship for eight years. He's a genuine believer. I'd never had any doubt about that, but eight years, and he wants to turn from it. Okay, so his wife forgives him. They begin to work on their relationship and to move ahead, and uh, six months later, he fell back into the, the other relationship. And he came clean about it again, confessed it, and, um, and she forgave him again, and they were working on their relationship again. And then three, four months after that, I got a phone call from him one day, and he said, uh, I have to talk to you know, my wife, and he said, I don't want to do it alone, and can we come to your office as soon as work is over? And as soon as he said that, I mean, you know, it was a foregone conclusion what was going to happen. And he came into the office, and, and he confessed for the third time that he had fallen back into an adulterous relationship with this woman, this other woman. And um, his, as, cup, as weeks went on, or days and weeks went on, his wife was so broken and so wounded and hurt by that, she didn't know what to do. Everybody was telling her to divorce him. He's a scumbag. Just get rid of him. And, but yet she didn't feel like she wanted to or should. And so she just said to me, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And so um, I said, well, you know, let's, let's do this. Let's give him the chance to stand in front of the church and admit what he's done. Let's just give him that chance. And if he'll do that, then if he'll do that, then we'll take that as a sign of humility and brokenness on his part that maybe he really is ready to begin anew this time. And so process that all with him. When it came to a Sunday morning at the end of the service, I stood up and I said, you know, we all falter, we all sin. Um, sometimes we get caught in things and we need others to help us get out of them. And sometimes just one or two people aren't enough. Sometimes 
comes to a point that we just have to maybe open up and, and speak this out in front of more of the church body. And then I gave him the platform. And he very clearly admitted that his, his adulterous relationships. And it was a week after that that he and I were talking. And here's the point I want to get to. He said this. He said, it wasn't until I stood there and I heard myself say that I had been involved in adultery for all these years. It wasn't until that moment when I heard myself say it that I realized the significance of my sin. Now, what, what, I, want to, what I want to take away from that is this. There are many, things, many different directions you could go with that illustration. But here's what I want us to hear. There is power in us not only believing something and holding it inside or even thinking it in our minds. There is power in actually listening to ourselves say it. There's power in that. Something's released when that happens. That, that's why so many of our worship songs, many of our worship songs are just worship songs focused directly on God and how wonderful He is and how great He is and we are praising and worshiping Him. Some of them are declarations. Like we're going to sing a song in a few moments, I will not be shaken. That's a declaration. You know, God, you're good. You're with me. You're powerful. You love me. And I will not be shaken. I, that's a declaration. When we sing that, listen to yourself say those words. Okay, don't just go through a rote sense, uh, blah, blah, blah. But I'm speaking these words from the heart and I'm going to listen to myself speaking them. And when you do that, something happens inside and it stirs and it changes our minds. It enables us to begin to think from heaven's perspective. Now, there are a couple of passages I want to look at. Uh, one of them is Second uh, Peter, Second Peter 1. And it, it gives us some of the uh, keys to this, to the whole, to the whole picture it gives us some things to make declarations about, in fact. The first part of the verse says this. His divine power, meaning God's divine power through Jesus, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. All right, right there at the beginning is a powerful declaration to make. God, by His divine power, has given me everything I need to live for Him. Let's say that together. I'm going to say it, and then we'll do our best to say it together, okay? We don't have this written down, but we're going to say, God, by His divine power, has given me everything I need to live for Him. All right? Let's say that together. God, by His divine power, has given me everything I need to live for Him. Now, believe me, if, if we believe that in our hearts and, and we're speaking that and we're listening to ourselves say that, and you say that every day, you're going to grow. You're going to grow. It's, it, it returns back into us and it multiplies in us. And so he says his divine power, um, not angelic power. He doesn't give us the power of angels. He doesn't give us superhuman strength. He gives us divine power, God's power he gives. And, he, and it's it provides everything we need. Do you ever think that you're lacking something? Do you ever look at your life and think, oh, wow, if I, uh, boy, Luke, uh, Wilson, Dave, Lori, 
boy, they have something I don't have. When they got saved, they got an extra dose of something that I didn't get. Do you ever think that? Anybody ever think that? I think that sometimes. Come on, let's be honest. Anybody ever think that? Okay, I th- here's the truth. When you accepted Jesus, you got everything you needed. Everything. His divine power was released into your life. Now, how do you activate that? What happens? Well, it says it's through the knowledge of him who called us. It's through knowing him. And knowledge here means more than knowing like head knowledge. It's more than just, okay, I've read the instructions on how to bake a cake. I know how to bake a cake. No, this word means I took those instructions into the kitchen and I interacted with them and I actually baked the cake so that I've experienced what I am thinking and what I'm believing. And so it's according to our knowledge, our true knowledge of him who called us. Remember, he called you by his own glory and goodness. Those two words are interesting right there. How did he call us by his glory and goodness? Well, his goodness is his love and his goodness is, is, is what uh, moved him to save us in the first place. So his goodness is the, really the motivation of God's heart towards us. And his glory is our destination. That's what he's moving us towards, to experience more and more of his glory. Now, it goes on to say, he's given us his great, in the next verse, is it? Yeah. Through these, his glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises. Great promises. Like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Great promises, like God will provide everything we need to fulfill his plan for our lives. That's a great promise. Great promises, like as simple as if you believe in Jesus, you are forgiven and you receive eternal life. You enter into the kingdom of God. The, the, the promise of righteousness, the pro, promise after promise after promise after promise that God's given to us. And he goes on then, and he says, so that through them, through the promises, you may participate in the divine nature, divine power, divine promises, divine nature. And that, that, that does not mean we become little gods. It means we are created in the image of God. And Jesus, because we're created in the image of God, Jesus can come into us and change us and give us his life. We can become like him. And we, so we participate in the divine nature. I mean, it's a mind-blowing thing. It, it's more than what I just said, but it's not, it's, it falls short of we become gods, okay? But it's a powerful thing that we get to participate in the divine nature through his promises. That's talking about our spiritual growth. And then it goes on to say that we've already escaped from the evils of the world. What that means is that the moment you having escaped the, 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 how's it go? Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, that having escaped means it's an already accomplished fact. You've already escaped. Now, now it's just a matter of, of, okay, I've been changed inside. How do I get that to bust out and become the, the me of everyday life? So I've already been set free, and I need to realize that. It's a good declaration, isn't it? 
especially if I'm struggling with some things that would relate to that. I've already been set free from all of the the evil desires and lusts that accompany this life. I don't have to give in to this because I have the divine power of God in me. And I've been through his promises I can walk in the divine nature. It's we make those declarations and and they become powerful in our lives. But Hebrews 4:2 says this. They didn't hear when they heard the message, it didn't profit them because it was not united with faith in those who heard it. So there's a bottom line issue of faith. I hear the message, I believe it. Hear and I believe it. I integrate it in, into my heart. I take it into my heart. But Romans 10 is the passage I really want to get to and take just a couple of minutes to describe. Because it says this, uh, in Romans 10, when it says, but what does it say? The connecting thought there is, he's asking the question uh, to connect with God. To really find a relationship with God, do you have to like climb a mountain? Do you have to travel halfway? Do you have to go on a spiritual quest or a journey or swim across the sea or what? And he says, no, you don't. He says, what does it say? He says, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. And so in the Old Testament, there was always this concept of mouth and heart. In Joshua 1.8, uh, embrace these words and never let them depart from your mouth. In other words, don't ever stop speaking them. Speak them continually. And so he identifies heart and mouth there. And then he goes on to say that is the message of faith that we preach. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, that confessing with the mouth and believing in the heart, what, what we have here actually, he starts with the outside, the external, and moves to the inside. And there's a form of speech here, a Hebrew speech that Paul is using. It's, it's um, made to, well, it's just a form of speech that they use to emphasize and to clarify, but it's called chiasmus. And in it, the first thing stated relates to the fourth thing stated. And the second thing relates to the third thing. So you have the outside, the number one and number four connect, and number two and number three connect. So he says here, um, go back to the other screen, please. Uh, if you believe in your, if you confess with your mouth, that's the outside, and believe in your heart. Now let's go to the next slide. Now the next thing he says is, for with the heart a person believes. You see what I mean? Mouth, heart, heart, and then mouth. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. What that means is that when you believe in your heart that Jesus really is the Son of God, and that he died for you, and you know, we say when you receive him, when you open, the, open your life up to him, uh, you, you can say it different ways. When that happens, you become righteous. Jesus enters your life. He changes you and gives you that new nature we were talking about earlier. And then he goes on to the external, and he says, And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And so the truth we confess with the mouth leads to salvation. Now, all too often we think of salvation strictly in terms of the initial step of receiving Christ, I got saved, and came into faith in Jesus. But the, the Bible uses the term salvation. It really, it means delivered. 
And it uses it as that initial step of receiving Christ, but it also uses salvation to describe the whole process of growth in Christ. Several places in the New Testament, and that's how he's using it here. The whole process of growth in, in Christ, and then ultimately salvation when Jesus returns and everything is made right. But he says here, we confess with the mouth, and literally the Greek term is into salvation. And so the idea is, I take these truths, I believe them in my heart, and then when I speak them out, something happens that it just multiplies their impact upon me, upon my mind, upon my heart, my spirit, and it, it just brings it deeper into me, and I am able to walk in the freedom of that truth by God's divine power. And this is just one of the processes he uses to, uh, to, to bring the Word of God alive and empowered within us. And so this confess, the word confess can also be translated um, declare. Uh, it, just about any lexicon, Greek lexicon you look at will, uh, will give that option of translating it as declare also and not just confess. And so we make this declaration of truth and uh, it's, it sets us free. When we believe it in our heart and declare it with our mouths, there is freedom that we begin to receive. Now, why is that? Why is it? Well, it, it goes back to creation. And God had something in his heart. He envisioned this planet. He envisioned humanity. He had that in him. And then what did he do to bring it out into reality? He spoke. Light was inside of him. And he said, let there be light. And what was in him came out. You follow that. Now, I don't know if, if we had been there, if we would have heard an actual human-sounding voice. I don't know that. But I know that the way he describes what he did is to use a human voice to speak. And so what we have inside of us, when we believe it and we declare it, we speak it. You know, I am a new creation in Christ. I do have every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. I speak those things. It changes my viewpoint. I begin to see things from heaven's perspective, and I grow spiritually. Now, the new life inside me is released, in other words. And so this whole idea of declarations, uh, I want you to know, is a powerful thing. And it's kind of new to us. We just started it, but it's not new to the church. Uh, the historical church, has they, they called them creeds. And one of the songs, the last song we're going to sing is really a creed. And it's, I, you know, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Th those are creeds, but they were to be spoken out loud. Not in a rote manner, but out of a heart of faith. And so when we do this, when we speak these declarations out, they have power. And um, actually, we're going to stand and speak the declaration that Dave wrote last week. So would you stand with me? And I want you to read this. I'm going to give you a minute just to take to read through it. Okay, I'm going to read it. And you just listen, okay? But read with me in your mind. Okay, this is the believing part here, okay? We reject fear and intimidation. We will not be overwhelmed or overrun. We have authority to use God's power. We are on the offensive. 
We push back the kingdom of darkness. We live in eager expectation. We long for the fullness of God's kingdom now and God's kingdom to come. All right, we're going to read that. And I want you to read it with feeling, read it with passion. Um, you know, maybe like the football illustration fits in here and you're getting ready for a game. And, and, and this is true. This is truth. And so as we read it, it changes us. Let's read it together, okay? And, and with, with, with feeling here. We reject fear and intimidation. We will not be overwhelmed or overrun. We have authority to use God's power. We are on the offensive. We push back the kingdom of darkness. We live in eager expectation. We long for the fullness of God's kingdom now and God's kingdom to come. Thanks. Have a seat. Amanda's going to come up and lead us through the offering, and then we're going to go into worship.